Amen. If you guys got your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, like I said, here in two weeks, we're going to be voting on a ministerial staff search team. And I just kind of want to really briefly just talk to you about that process. And if you're going to Sunday school after, you'll hear some more on it as well. But beginning next week, um, ballots will be available. Um, even some membership roles will be available. And here's kind of the, the rundown of that team. The, the staff search team will consist of seven members of FBC, Enid, who will search for and unanimously recommend to the members of FBC, Enid, the calling of our next worship pastor. And those eligible to serve on this search team are members of FBC as defined in Article 1, Section 4 of our bylaws. And here's just a few things about those members of this team. Number one, they have to be over the age of 18. Number two, they cannot be any staff member of the church or that staff member's spouse. So, like in my situation, we can't vote for Stephanie to be on that search team. Uh, my Stephanie. Um, well, I guess this Stephanie as well. She's, she's on staff. So, it can't be a staff member or their spouse. Uh, and that includes ministerial staff, paid support personnel. Um, and it can't be multiple members of a household. And the way it's kind of written, let's say you're a husband, wife, or something, or two people in your household to get voted onto that team, you guys have to decide who it's going to be, right? So it, the, the ball is in your court if that happens, all right? But the nominees will, so what we'll do is we'll call a special call business meeting at the end of each service on June 26th, that's in two weeks, and basically you will submit those names on a piece of paper, which you'll receive, and then after that, the nominees will be reviewed and organized by myself, the senior pastor, the leadership team, and deacon officers. And then will be communicated to the congregation once all seven positions have been filled. In other words, those teams have to go out and ask those persons if they want to be on the team, yes or no. Um, and so if you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm going to be gone that Sunday, what you can do um, beforehand is call the church office with your seven names, or stop by the church office, or email the church. Um, again, ballots will be available beginning next week, but if you're saying, well, I'm going to be gone next Sunday through the following Sunday, or something of that nature, then just contact the church office this week, and we'll work um, through that. Um, but there's a reason why offices are closed this Friday, because I'm going to be gone this week. Nick and Stephanie are going to be gone, leaving just Linda and Sue man in the office. And so anyways, don't bombard them too much this week. They've got a lot on their plate. But anyways, that's kind of the process. So be praying for that. As we search for that, that worship pastor, you'll hear some more of that um, in the coming days and, and weeks. Um, but anyways, um, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, now, a couple weeks ago, if I can find my little it is, oh, here it is. It's up here. All right. It's right there in front of me. A couple of weeks ago, um, I talked to you about me working at a retirement facility. And in college, I actually worked at two retirement facilities. The first one was an independent living, which is what I talked about the mice a couple of weeks ago. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to it. The second one, though, I followed my boss. He was a really good boss. And he went to go basically be the boss of an assisted living facility. And so I followed him. He talked to me about it, and I followed him. And at that facility, I got to do activities um, and event planning and, and so on. Basically, I got to just hang out with all the residents and have a good time. Um, and one of the things that we started doing was driving the residents on kind of a sightseeing adventure. And we go to all sorts of places. We go to lakes. 
We, we would go to downtown Oklahoma City. We'd just go look at all these cool places. And we would also go to these really extravagant neighborhoods in and around Oklahoma City. They loved this. They loved to see the houses and everything. I did too, right? It was just like incredible to see some of these mansions, basically, in the Oklahoma City area. And so what we, we would do is we'd hop in this van and we'd just drive around these neighborhoods. And sometimes I had to sneak through the gate just to get us in, but, but we were okay. And so we would get into these neighborhoods, and I'll never forget driving around, and we would see neighborhood pools, neighborhood parks, and, and, and walkways, and just like incredible facilities in this neighborhood community. And here's the thing. No matter how many times... I drove through those neighborhoods. No matter how many times I drove down those streets, I did not have access to those blessings, so to speak, within that neighborhood. Because those blessings were reserved for only those inside the community of the neighborhood. You had to be a member of the neighborhood to be a recipient of the blessings that came with the neighborhood, like the neighborhood pool, the neighborhood park, and so on. And because I wasn't included, I didn't have access to them. Once you and I are in Christ, we belong to a community, a people, a body, in which you now have access to blessings that you otherwise would not have access to. And Paul wants his readers to fully see and realize what our identity in Jesus means for us right now in the present, but also in the, pre- or in the reality to come. And he does this by bringing to light three blessings which you and I have access to in Jesus. And these three blessings pop up in this one long sentence that we looked at last week, verses 3 through 14. Now, we're not going to look at all those verses again this week. We're just going to narrow in on these three themes or these three blessings. And this is what those blessings are. Freedom forgiveness, and a future. See, there are three undeniable facts that become true of you simply because you are now in Jesus. Remember, location determines identification. And these three facts produce these three blessings that you now possess in Jesus because you now belong to the community or the body of Jesus. So in other words, let me break it down like this. Because you are in Jesus, you are, number one, redeemed, which means you have freedom. Number two, you are pardoned, which means you have forgiveness. And number three, you are sealed, which means you have a future. And all of this is because you are in Christ. Outside of Christ, you're not redeemed, pardoned, or sealed. Outside of Christ, you don't have freedom, forgiveness, or a future. Only in Christ. So let's kind of break these down. This first one, this redeemed, which means you have forgiveness, or you, or sorry, that you are free. So look at verse 7, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Again, this is right in the middle of this really long sentence. It's kind of like a poem, kind of like a song. It's a declaration that strikes a chord in us. And listen to what Paul writes in verse 7. He says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption. We have redemption through his blood. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Now stop right there. I was, um, 
or sorry, stop right there. What does the word redemption mean? It means to be released or set free. Let me go back here. I'm getting way off here. There we go. Redemption means to be released or set free. Now, a couple of years ago, I was at Falls Creek, and I heard the main lead worship pastor say this. He said, God loves you just the way you are. Now, that's a very popular statement. That's the statement you and I hear, and it sounds like a really, really good statement. The problem is you'll never find it in Scripture. Nowhere does God say, I love you just the way you are. Now listen, Jesus will embrace you just the way you are. He will invite you to follow him just the way you are. But listen to me on this. Jesus became who we are so as to crucify who we are. Because he loves us. This is why it was the will of the Lord, as we read in Isaiah, to crush him for what? For our iniquities, for our trespasses. Scripture is very, very clear. Jesus was very, very clear. There's a problem with you and I. There's a problem in its fallen state with the human nature. It's not inherently good, but inherently evil, rebellious, wicked. Remember what he says in Ephesians 5.8, you once were darkness. This is who you were. It's what's coming out of you, Jesus said, that is defiling you, meaning it's what's in us that separates us from God. The who we are is the problem. And it's true for all of us. For all of us have sinned. And for the wages of that sin, what we have earned, what we have a right to is death. That's what a wage is. It's what you have a right to based off your works. We have a right to death. We deserve separation. It's what we have a right to. And we are bound. We are enslaved to that sin, to that death. We are bound by sin, hopeless and dead and trapped in sin. We are darkness, but God. But God came to redeem us in and through Jesus. He sent Jesus to become who we are so as to crush who we are. This is why he who knew no sin became sin. He became who we are so as to crush who we are and make a way for the slave to become free. As Jesus said, he was sent to declare freedom for the captives, to set free those who are oppressed, meaning God is the Redeemer. Now, what does this Redeemer word or this title mean? Redeemer, we hear this word a lot pop up in Scripture. Redeemer is one who buys back a property or house that has been sold. Or a Redeemer is a kinsman who buys back a family member who has fallen into slavery. Now in the Old Testament, the term Redeemer, this title is applied in its latter meaning to God. Meaning, oftentimes in the Old Testament, you see God kind of shown to be the kinsman who buys back a family member who has fallen into slavery. He is our redeemer. Here's what's interesting, though. The title redeemer is never used of Jesus. Never in the New Testament is he referred to as the redeemer. Now, he is referred to as our redemption, but never 
our Redeemer. Because, remember, the Trinity is a work in this. God the Father is the Redeemer who redeems us in and through Jesus, who is our redemption. God the Father buys us back from slavery. How? Specifically, as Paul says, through the blood of Jesus. Okay, so think of it like this. There is an island in Uganda. You can see it here on the screen. And this island is just a small piece of land, and it's called Punishment Island. Because long ago, if a woman was found to be pregnant outside of wedlock, the woman was taken by boat to the island and left for debt. She was excluded from the community, bound now and enslaved to her impending death. But there was a way for her to be saved or to be set free. During that time, there was a dowry price, a gift price for a man to marry a woman. And if he didn't want to pay a price to marry a virgin because it was too expensive, he would boat out to Punishment Island, choose a bride, and thereby save her life by taking her off the island and bringing her home with him. This went on up until like 60 years ago in this area. Now listen, the whole idea of Punishment Island is a terrible thing. But I bring it up as an illustration because the act of a man choosing to go, to cross the sea, so to speak, to save a woman from her inevitable death, from her slavery, and then choosing to take her in as his bride, thereby setting her free, is a perfect picture of what Christ did for the church. Jesus came to the island. He came to earth. He stepped down into darkness. God sent him to redeem us, to set us free. To buy us back. To purchase us. This word redemption that Paul uses here, it's more like a picture of someone who has been kidnapped and the one doing the kidnap is demanding a ransom. God sent Jesus to the island and paid that ransom by and through his blood. Thus those in Christ who have the blood of Jesus on them have been freed by God. We were dead We were slaves. We were darkness. This is who we were. Our sin put us on the islands, separated us from God. But God, in and through Jesus, crossed the chasm, stepped foot on the island to redeem us, to buy us back. So in Christ, having received Christ in faith, having believed when we heard the word of truth, we were set free from the bondage and the weight and the prison of our own sin. And this freedom, again, came through his blood. But his blood doesn't just redeem you. It pardons you. His blood doesn't just set you free. It pardons you. Go back to that verse, verse 7. In him we have redemption. We have been set free through his blood. But then he says, the blood, the forgiveness of sins. That word that Paul uses there for forgiveness means to pardon. To pardon. We haven't just been redeemed in him, but in him we've also been pardoned. Now what in the world does pardon mean? What in the world does it mean to be pardoned? This is what pardon means. The act by an empowered authority of reversing a sentence rendered under a verdict of guilty. 
meaning you were declared guilty. But the empowered authority has reversed that verdict, and now you are declared innocent. And this is what that word means. Forgiveness, in which Paul uses here, means to pardon. Now, don't miss this. Going all the way back to Genesis, you have Adam and Eve, right? And then you have Cain and Abel. And what happens? Cain killed Abel. And then comes Judgment Day. And God finds Cain, and this is what he says, Genesis 4.10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The emphasis is on what has Cain done, his act. What have you done? Because the voice of your brother's blood, Abel's blood, is crying to me from the ground. Now don't miss this. What was his blood crying out? You are guilty. You did this. But listen to this. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to his sprinkled blood, that what? That speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you see it? The blood of Abel declares you're guilty. The blood of Jesus, however, declares you're innocent. You were once guilty, but now what God has done in and through Jesus is reversed the sentence. And now he declares you innocent. This is why Jesus would say, for this is my blood of the what? Of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. The word that Jesus used there means is the same word that Paul used, means to pardon which is poured out for many for the pardon of sins. In other words, in and through the blood of Jesus, the verdict is reversed. Let me give you, to you like this example. I'll tell kids this a lot, this, this story, in order to kind of paint the picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So imagine you're a child, and you're in your living room, and you're with your sibling. And all of a sudden, you pick up a baseball or some kind of ball, and then you just chunk it through the living room window, shattering it to pieces. Some of you might have done this. I don't know. And then you're standing there, and then your parent or guardian comes in, and you're standing there, you and your sibling, who's to blame? If I ask a child this, a five, six, seven, eight-year-old child, every time I say, well, I'm to blame. Why? Because I did it. I'm the one that deserves to be punished. So let's assume your parent comes in there and the verdict is, okay, you did this, you deserve punishment, you're the guilty one. But let's now imagine that after the verdict has been given, your sibling, not sure how many siblings would do this, but your sibling then steps between you and your parent and says, I know they're guilty, I know they're the ones who did it, but punish me instead. Render me the guilty one, then the innocent one. This, in essence, is what Jesus did for you. He stepped between you and the Father and said, pour your wrath out on me instead. Now, here's the thing. The parent must accept the sacrifice, thereby reversing the verdict, now taking the guilty or the guilt on you and then placing it upon your sibling. This is what Jesus did for you. He set you free. But not only did he set you free, he pardons you. 
meaning you now are declared innocent by and through his blood. So, in Jesus, you're set free. In Jesus, you are forgiven. So you are redeemed. You are pardoned. But also in Jesus, you are sealed. Look at verse 13. Skip down to verse 13. And Paul writes, you also were included in Christ. When what? When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. Who is a seal? The promised Holy Spirit. Now, what in the world does it mean to be sealed? Well, there's two different applications with this word sealed. There's a legal application. A seal was a protection a guarantee that what is presented or finalized is authentic and true. A seal, in other words, in a legal sense, is used for validation. It's used for authenticity. For example, a couple years ago, I said goodbye to a very dear friend of mine. It was a very moving moment for me. And this is who I'm talking about. My Toyota 4Runner that my brother had given me 11 years prior to me saying goodbye. I mean, I knew this, this car. I knew every little weird thing about it. I knew the odd smell and what was causing it. And I I knew everything about this vehicle. Well, a couple years ago, we had to sell it in order to make room for our expanding family and whatnot. We had to get some other more reliable vehicles. And so we got ready to sell the vehicle. And then I met up with the guy who was going to buy it. We went to the bank. We got the title work and everything out there. We got all the documents there. And then there was a notary there. And she signed off on the transfer of title. And when she did this, she then stamped her notary stamp, her seal, on the document. And what that did is, is it validated the document. It showed that the document was now authentic. So if it was ever questioned, if someone like an accuser ever brought us into court or something were to happen of that nature, you would just simply look at the seal and say, it's been notarized, it's authentic, it's been validated. What Paul is saying here is that when you heard the gospel of truth presented to you and you believed in him, God signed the document. He signed his name upon you and in you. How? By giving you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is his signature. He is the seal. This is what Paul is saying, that the possession of the Holy Spirit of God in you validates that you no longer belong to darkness, but now you belong to light. It validates your faith, your belief is now authenticated. It's official. God's stamp of approval is upon you. You are sealed, marked in him. And this is similar to circumcision in the Old Testament. The men of Israel were to be circumcised to show that they belong to God, that they are marked, that they are his people, that they are included in the community. But circumcision was not meant to be just a physical lineage sign. Circumcision was Abraham's mark, a sign that had been sealed by God, but it was the sign given as a validation of his faith. 
How do I know that? Well, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 4. I won't read it all, but just listen to this. I don't have the words on the screen. Listen to what Paul says. He's talking about Abraham's righteousness, and he says, how was it counted to him? He says this in verse 10. How was Abraham's righteousness counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Paul says it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, hear this, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose, Paul says, was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make Abraham the father of the circumcised, who were not only circumcised in the flesh, but who were also walking in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, circumcision was the physical sign, the seal meant to validate or show authenticity of the faith. But it was always about circumcision of the heart, to be marked by God in the heart by faith. So instead of circumcision, now we have a new covenant, not of circumcision, but of the blood of Jesus. And so now in the new covenant, there's the Holy Spirit. And when you believed, God signed his name, so to speak, upon you. That signature is the Holy Spirit, the seal. And your possession of the Holy Spirit validates your faith, your belief. This is why Paul said, it says, when you heard it and you believed, then were you marked. Then were you sealed in him. So that's the legal application, but there's also a religious application to this word seal. In a religious sense, back in that day, seals were signs of a God or the image of a God that linked the holder of that seal with the deity or the user of that seal with the deity. So in Ephesus, there was this famous goddess that was widely worshipped. Her name was Artemis, this Greek goddess of hunting and wild nature and chastity. Well, in Ephesus, she had this temple that looked something like this. This is just a rendering, obviously. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was twice as big as the Parthenon. And if one possessed a seal of hers, it linked that person to her. That person belonged to her. What Paul is getting at is not just the legal sense of this word, but also the religious sense, that when you heard and believed your faith in Jesus declared to God and to the world that you have abandoned all other seals connecting you to false gods, that you now belong to the true and eternal God. Possessing the Holy Spirit links you, connects you to Jesus. You're his. You're included in his community. You're marked. And thus now you have access to all his blessings. Let, let me show it to you this way. Noah, a couple of years ago, was in the summer art program, and he made for me a coffee mug, and this is what the coffee mug looks like. And when the clay was still soft, he signed Happy Dad on it. You can kind of see it there in the picture. He signed Happy Dad, because this is for Father's Day, and of course Father's Day is next week and everything, but this is what he signed on it, Happy Dad. By doing so, in a way he was making it official, that this gift was intended for me. It was mine. And then it went through the cooker and he presented it to me freely. 
And this is the gift he gave me. It's mine. I possess it now. It links me to him. But here's the thing. Noah didn't just engrave happy dad on it. Whenever I turn it over, if I should somehow forget who I belong to and who gave me this gift, all I have to do is look at the name engraved forever on the bottom. Because here's the thing. I don't see my name. I see his name. Engraved into the gift which I now possess. This is a gift given to me which connects me to him. It's mine, yet it's marked by his name, sealed by his name. And this is what God does for all those who believe. They are marked. They're connected to him, bound to him, no one or nothing else but him. They are his children. And to affirm this, to assure this forever, it's not our names engraved on our hearts. It's not our names engraved upon us. It's his name. So if you're in Christ and the Holy Spirit of God is in you, he is your seal, that signature, that sign. It's no longer you who lives, but Christ who now lives in you. You died with him and you've been raised to walk with him in the newness of life. You've been born again. You're now in his community, a member of his body. You now have access to the neighborhood pool, to the park, to the pond, to the walkways, everything. You have access now to freedom in him, to forgiveness in him, and a future in him. And that is your assurance that you belong to him. There's a father-son story that some of you probably heard about, Team Hoyt. The father actually died just last year, but they participated in a thousand races together. From marathons to triathlons, Ironmans, duathlons. They even rode their bikes across the country. But here's the twist in this inspiring story. As a result of oxygen deprivation to the son's brain at the time of his birth, the son was diagnosed as a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. The son, I have a picture here, can't walk, he can't run. He can't swim. He can't even talk without the the assistance of a computerized machine. So how do they do it? How do they run all those races together and finish those races together? Because the father would push him in a wheelchair when they ran. And when they rode a bike, the father would put the son in a special seat. And when they had to do the swimming portion, the father would pull the son in a boat In other words, the father promised the son that he would push him, carry him, or pull him across that finish line, that he would do whatever it took to get him across that finish line. And that is the promise of God. No matter what you face in this life, as a believer, God will push you. He will carry you. He will pull you across that finish line because it's he who is in you. You're free, you're forgiven, and you have a future. And that is an assurance by God himself. You are marked, you are sealed in Christ. And this is just the beginning. He goes on to say in verse 14, the Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He's the down payment of our inheritance. The deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. It's like having an inheritance of a trillion dollars and God has only given you a billion of it. You have it now, but there's so much more to come. 
Because you have the Holy Spirit of God in you, you await an inheritance in which you yourself will share in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. As John says in 1 John, I don't know what we will be like, but I know we will be like him. You will share in that, and you will rule with him in a new creation. We see this at the end of Revelation. A new heaven, a new earth, a whole new reality in which there will be no more suffering and evil and darkness. In which you will dwell with God and you will see Him and you will walk with Him and you will know Him and you will reign with Him forever and ever and ever. And we await to take possession of this inheritance. But this is our future. This is our assurance. Predetermined in eternity past that those in Christ who would receive Him would be born of God. Would now have access to freedom and forgiveness and a future. They would have access to the neighborhood pool, the park, the pond. They would be included in this community. But here's the thing. That's only in Christ. Those not in Christ are excluded from redemption, from freedom. They're excluded from forgiveness, from being pardoned. They're excluded from that future with him forever in glory. Again, it comes down to what is our reception to the invitation? And he bids us, deny yourself, pick up your cross and come follow me. So I'm going to invite the worship team forward as we enter this time of invitation, just with heads bowed, eyes closed. There's potentially two groups in this room. Those who are included now in the community of Christ, the body of Christ, who now have access to freedom and forgiveness and to a future. It's simply because when you heard the gospel of your salvation, you believed. But then there's potentially another group in here, those who are excluded from the community, who are outside of Christ who do not have access to freedom, forgiveness, and to this future. Which one are you? If you're outside of Christ, he's calling you, just as you are to come, that you would be crucified with him and be raised in a new life, be born not of the flesh, but be born of God. And if you're in Christ, be assured Be full of joy and courage. For you have now access, eternal access, to freedom, forgiveness, and a future. You've been set free. The verdict has been reversed. You've now been declared not guilty but innocent. And you now will be with him forever, endeavor, endeavor. Which one are you? I'm going to ask that you stand with me as I pray. Whatever the Spirit is leading you to do during this time, you be obedient to that, even as I pray. Father, Lord, we come to you. Lord, I thank you for Jesus and who we are in Jesus. I thank you that in Jesus we have freedom, forgiveness, and a future. That you redeem us in and through Christ, that he is our redemption. That in Christ, 
You've pardoned us. You've declared us innocent. And you have sealed us in Christ with the Holy Spirit who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Father, we have assurance in you. It's all of you. But Lord, there might be one or two in this room who are outside of Christ, who are not in Christ. They are excluded from these blessings. They're still in their sin. They're still in darkness. They stand condemned under your wrath. Lord, I pray that today they would enter into Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would just simply repent to believe. And for those of us who are in Christ, Lord, I pray that we'd be full of confidence and boldness and joy and courage, knowing that nothing or no one can separate us from your love now. Nothing or no one can snatch us from your hand, for it's no longer we lives, it's Christ who lives in us. We've been marked and sealed. Your name written upon us and in us through the blood of Jesus and in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name that I pray. As we sing, I'll be down here for it if you want to come down. But be obedient to the Spirit's prompting in your heart.